Welcome to Diabretic, the podcast where a T1D artist and a T1D expert come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks. I am a T1D artist, baker, and creator of all things. And this episode, we have mini garlic naan and <laughs> a fantastic discussion with Dr. Carrie Rentschler from McGill University. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, but there are a lot of conversations about the way that devices communicate information to people with diabetes and everybody else and how we negotiate it. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. I'm excited for everyone to have a listen. So join us. Welcome back. We are talking about our mini garlic naans that we made. Mm. They were really good. <laughs> I'm going to turn it to you because you know everything about it and I know nothing. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> you know what it was like to eat them. Uh, we always joke about I'm just the taste tester. <laughs> <laughs> we come together to bake bread. Sometimes we come together to bake bread, but we also just enjoy it together. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a... Uh... Good enough. Part of the greatness of bread. That's right. Bringing everyone together. Everyone together. That's why we're not doing everyone. podcast. <laughs> uh, not everyone. Actually, that'll be part of our conversation a little bit later. Um, but this, this recipe is based off of the garlic naan recipe by Chef John <laughs> Mitsuwich. Uh, he runs the Food Wishes. <laughs> I was going to say foodwishes.com. From foodwishes.com. <laughs> With oh man, garlic I tease naan. Steve so many times because I hear that. <laughs> uh, Chef John has become a part of our uh family, it feels so mm, nice. Listen, hear his voice coming from the kitchen when Steve's doing dishes, watching That's right. Chef John. That's right. I mean, he's he's he, amazing, he exists in our home. Okay, he's part <laughs> of our home and our kitchen. <laughs> Honestly, though, if you... If you're listening, John, we love you. <laughs> oh, yeah, please, would you? I mean, I'm going to tag you. So, I mean, you probably don't check Instagram, though. Um, if you're not familiar with Chef John or Food Wishes, I do highly recommend the Food Wishes YouTube channel and foodwishes.com. Or there's, it's a blog spot, I think, still. But uh, he is super quirky. He's got a lot of idiosyncrasies. Uh, and in the way he speaks, the way that he presents the information <laughs> and it's fantastic, but he is a pretty brilliant cook. Yeah. And even more so, he's really good at communicating the process without making it all jargony and inaccessible. And I have or just over the years, irritating some of the YouTube channels you're just like they have to have some gimmick or something uh, and i mean he has his like the way he speaks and stuff that makes him who he is in his videos who he is but i don't know he do he doesn't have those same irritating <laughs> yeah i mean you know folks listening might have an idea of kind of the the stereotypes of youtubers quote unquote and there's a <laughs> lot of these uh, kind of you know adolescent joking styles that get a lot of clicks and a lot of views. And so when channels start to grow and they start to see what kinds of content is creating those clicks that result in their money making, 
uh, they lean in. And I'm not going to, you know, name any names there, but uh, <laughs> there are times when I have really enjoyed a channel and then kind of lost interest because of the way the content's presented. It's really hard. But um, anyway, there are a lot of people, frankly, who, like Melissa, uh, have certain aversions to the way that Chef John talks, too. So, <laughs> uh, you know, take it for what it is. Uh, anyway, back to the bread. <laughs> there are uh, a couple of things with this recipe that I think are pretty key that worked out really well and uh, helped produce what was a really kind of soft and fluffy, but uh, like chewy exterior mm -hmm. in these mini non breads. And the mininess, I think, is really. Yeah. Fun. Oh, the just little pillows. <laughs> That's right. So a couple of keys to the recipe itself. The yogurt is key to the texture and flavor of naan. And you can make naan without it. There are a lot of vegan naan recipes, but it does actually help produce a lot of the textural and flavor components that you expect from naan, uh, if you're familiar in whatever context. And uh, the other thing, too, is ghee or clarified butter for after they are cooked. Um, the difference there is basically whether or not you brown the butter solids after you have clarified it, you boil it for a little bit. You want to explain to people what that means? Oh, sure. <laughs> I don't think I knew what clarified butter was until like a year or two ago when actually we <laughs> were talking about it with my brother. Um, who clarifies butter um, when he's making popcorn and stuff like that. So, yeah. Hey, Marcus. <laughs> the main idea there is if you heat butter uh, past a certain point, the fats and the what they call the milk solids or the proteins and that kind of stuff, uh, they separate. And so you can actually see the liquidy, yellowy stuff. Uh, and then the whitish solid pieces that drop to the bottom of, of a pot if you put it in a pot and heat it up um that's clarified butter that's as far as it needs to go because you have removed the milk solids and that's the stuff that burns so clarified butter has a super high smoke point so you can use it in a lot of different ways of cooking and the difference between clarified butter and ghee is that if you then continue to cook those milk solids, they will start to brown and you get some really complex, nutty kind of flavors and so aromas delicious. <laughs> that work their way into the uh, milk fats that's clarified sitting at the top there. Um, and it is super good. And it is a key to a lot of South Asian and Indian cuisines. Um, so if you can make ghee, it's super easy. It only takes like 10 or 15 minutes, uh, but you got to keep an eye on it as it browns and that's about it. But um, you brush it on after they are cooked. And the fun thing about naan, <laughs> and this is true with a lot of flatbreads. Is breads, there only one fun thing about naan? <laughs> you know what? That's a good point. The f <laughs> there are multiple fun things about this naan because these are mini. And that's Everything's just better small. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny things are just cute. Cute. Way more fun as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the, the process involved in cooking flatbreads makes it a lot less time-consuming than a lot of other breads. And so you get that bulk rise, and then you just roll them out and slap them on a dry pan. 
really hot dry pan. Um, they cook, you flip it over, seriously like two minutes each side or so, and that's about it. Brush the butter on. And then you pull them garlic. off and brush <laughs> on that butter. Garlic In this case infused. with garlic. Yeah. Um, and it's super delicious. Uh, there's one last component here that I think helps a lot with aesthetics. Um, <laughs> doesn't add a ton to the flavor, but a little bit maybe. And that's some cilantro. Yeah, we should have tried some with and without because I don't yeah. feel... I mean, I like, I like cilantro. I'm not one of those people who taste soap. Right. Um, but I, it's not like I want like big pieces of it on top of salads or things like that. Um, but I, I, I didn't think it, I mean, it didn't deter me to have it on there. So Yeah. And one of the little tips that, that Chef John talks through in his recipe video is that he likes to like chop up those cilantro leaves just a little bit and then sprinkle them on top of the bread on the each of these non pieces right at that last moment before he finishes rolling it out so that when he cooks it in the pan, for one thing, it sticks to the bread itself and it's not just part of the butter, but you also then get a little bit of charring and that kind of stuff. So it's really kind of aesthetically pleasing. Steve's talking about burning again. Let's uh, well, not. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of flack from that. I like brown listen, things. Right. I like the taste of brown things. That's right. But there's a fine line. And listen, folks. Okay, that whole conversation <laughs> last time led to some blowback here, where it's like, <laughs> oh, Melissa doesn't like food that's cooked. And like, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> we had a whole family text thread about bacon and just. Yeah, it went off the rails. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, these, uh, his recipe produces what would, I guess you would consider kind of a classically sized non we divided that up into like three each and it created these little i don't know three or four inch long mini nons that were just perfect for dipping and uh, they turned out fantastic so i highly recommend we're going to link the uh recipe blog post probably rather than the youtube channel itself so that you can go and check it out and uh bake this yourself let us know what you think our guest today is Dr. Carrie Rentschler. She's an associate professor in the Department of Art History and Communication Studies at McGill University. She's also an associate member of the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies there. She has published widely in relation to feminist movements, especially how those movements respond in relation to gender violence and unpacks a lot of the political implications of that, both online and IRL. She also has been writing and publishing and working on questions related to type 1 diabetes and technology. And we're very happy to have her on the show. Uh, Dr. Rentschler, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Steve. First and foremost, we always like to start out by asking guests, uh, what is your relationship with bread? And what is your relationship with diabetes? First of all, love the questions. Um, <laughs> and I'll start with the bread one, though, yes. you know, the bread and diabetes one are related. <laughs> Certainly. As those of us with type one <laughs> know that, right? Yes. Um, I have a, I say I have a, a long and intimate relationship with both bread and diabetes. 
Uh, I've always loved bread. Love the smell of, you know, bread in the mm. oven. You know, it's just so good. Um, I've never been good at making yeast bread, I'll say, yeah. but my partner is really good at it. So, like, that, he makes the yeast that's bread. That's kind of nice, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I'm the quick bread lady, basically. <laughs> I'm, I can make a good banana bread uh, and, you know, pumpkin muffins and those sorts mm. of things. So, so can he as well. But, you know, that's interesting that, you know, that question about bread is always a charged one, I think, for a lot of people, too. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I grew up in the United States. Okay. Um, and moved to Montreal in 2004 at the height of the Adkins diet, you know, sort uh, of yeah. a phenomenon, let's call mm -hmm. it, uh, which was really anti-carb, right? It yeah. was like all about not Low eating carb, carbohydrates. No carb. Yeah, exactly. To lose weight. Um, I knew a lot of people who were doing it. It was actually, you know, working for them and it was right. really, you know, kind of interesting to witness. But at the same time, there was just like this kind of uh, backlash against bread. I mean, seriously, I'd call it a backlash. Like bread was, sure. was, was immoral in some ways. There was a very much oh, immoral demonized discourse. Yeah, very demonized. Um, yeah. And then when I moved to Montreal, Montreal is like this bread loving, bread celebrating city. Oh. Right. And it has like, um, you know, when we moved here, we were kind of coming at this point where, you know, all these fantastic bakeries um, had just been open for like a few years. And that's just expanded from now. And even in the past two years, like three bakeries have opened up in the neighborhood where I live. Oh, yeah. Which is extremely very exciting. Very yeah. exciting for this household. Um so it was such a treat to move to a place where people actually liked bread and didn't think it was a bad thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, uh, I mean, there's a kind of anti-carb um, sentiment that's been around a long time in the States, I would say, too. I always say, I'll tell once really short story about this. I was, yeah. um, when I was in grad school, I was in the women's locker room, um, you know, after a swim. And, you know, I'm just getting dressed, but I'm eavesdropping on a group of younger women who are also in the locker room. And one had brought a loaf of bread to share with her friends. And I think it was, it was her grandma or her mother had made it and sent it like as a gift. Here's a little treat for you. Right. And she was offering it to her friends and her friends were like, oh, I can't eat that. Right, that's bread. I can't eat that. It's gonna mess up my diet. <laughs> You know, it's something I, I simply won't put in my body. Right. And I, at that point, I stopped listening because I was so unhappy <laughs> to hear yeah, that. Triggered. Like, Not especially when it. someone's, <laughs> exactly like a trigger, when someone's offering you fresh baked bread, you know, from a family member uh, and you refuse the, refuse the invitation, right? I was like, oh man, something's very wrong here. Something's so wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm and sure this yeah. intersects with a lot of your work in relation to feminist studies and gender studies in general, because there's a there's a lot of history behind why American culture uh, produces such problematic relationships with food in general. Um, but particular yes. ones, like you said, bread in particular. Yeah. So. Yeah. That eating is a moral, right, is a moral issue. Um, right. It's like deeply moral in the U.S. and. It's not so moral here in Montreal and Canada, I would That's say. That's interesting. I only, I've only lived in Montreal in Canada. Yeah. But uh, it's just not it's, not, it's not the same. And it really changes, you know, how you think about and relate to food as a result. Yeah. Something I've, you know, loved all of my life. I've always loved to eat uh, and taken great pleasure in eating. So it's like, I live in a place where people take pleasure well, in this food. this is a thing. Yeah. And it's amazing, 
right? Yes. It's not this like moral, you know, conundrum uh, in terms of like, what am I going to eat? Um, you know, because eating is seen as bad somehow, right? It's yeah. sort of morally suspect. I mean, we might have moral questions about food that are about like, how's it grown? And of you know, course, who's right. growing it? And how are they treated? And, you know, those sorts of things. But this other dimension around sort of embodiment and, you know, gender and race and class and all of that mm. kind of, you know, gets, gets, you know, targets particular people for extra surveillance, I would say, yeah. around what they're eating and how they're eating. For sure. Um, and of course that has, you know, that has implications for folks with diabetes as well, because we're already, you know, surveyed in many ways. It's a kind right. of monitored, right, in our lives, um, both by caregivers, but also, just other people in our lives, right? Because it's all about managing, you know, what we're eating and, you know, yeah. how we're treating our disease, right? For sure. Um, I can answer that question about diabetes too, if, in relationship yeah. to this, yeah. if that seems all right. Absolutely. I mean, I have, uh, I've lived with diabetes. Actually, this month, January, is my like diabetes anniversary. Ah, <laughs> we'll call <yes>. it. <laughs> I was diagnosed the in January. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was diagnosed back in January of 1973. So it's been 49 years and I'm wow, 50. Yeah. So, so I, I, I was one uh, when I was diagnosed and I don't really know anybody else who was diagnosed that young. I know someone mm -hmm. else who was diagnosed at like age three, which is very close. Also a yeah. toddler, right? Mm -hmm. Or babyish. <laughs> um, so I, my whole life I've, I've, uh, has been diabetic basically. Yeah. Uh, I've always like identified with diabetes cause it's, it's what I've known my entire life. So I also say like, I have a long and intimate relationship with diabetes because mm. it's really all I know in terms of yeah. what it is to live in this body. Um, and that's really different. I think from folks who are diagnosed a bit later, like as preteens and yeah. as teens. And of course we're seeing like, um, Diagnosis ages, you know, much older as yeah, well at this point. Definitely. In terms of 20s, 30s, diabetes. 40s. I've talked with yeah. people in their 40s and 50s who That's were diagnosed it. very late in life. And, you know, what's interesting about that in part is uh, a lot of those people, if they had been diagnosed 10 years ago, there wouldn't be a conversation. They would just be diagnosed type 2 and there would be no kind of exploration of what's happening in their particular body. Right? right. Because of these like associations with age and these diagnoses. Yeah, right. The difference between type one and type two being what age are you? Right. right. Rather than what is actually going on in your body. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah, which... producing insulin. Right. Versus maybe overproducing and not being able to absorb insulin. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really that's really interesting because uh, I so I don't have diabetes and my spouse and partner, Melissa, who I co-host this uh, podcast with does. And, um, she was diagnosed when she was nine. And so this is kind of in that age range you're talking about right there in the middle where yeah. she does have memories of life before yeah. diagnosis, but right. pretty much her whole life has been right. And so yeah. there's a weird tension there because there's always this before. Um, and that gets really messy uh, when we yeah. start to like think about this in academic terms, right? Well, um, absolutely. The and just and the, the ways, after. yeah. And how yeah. that shapes people's, you know, the meaning they make of their disease and how they're supposed to think about it. Because at that point too, that point of diagnosis is like, okay, now you are this, you right. are diabetic. 
And here's how you need to think about this. Here's what you need to do. Here's what all the Mm -hmm. issues are. And of course, you know, you typically get this litany of like all of the complications that you might face, right, right, at a certain point um, uh, with type 1 diabetes. Type 2 as well. We share a lot of the same complications, um, which makes sense. Uh, But that I think is this kind of, for a lot of people, probably quite traumatic. So it wasn't traumatic for me as a person because I didn't know. (laughs) You know, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, um, I don't. I can't get into my mind uh, as a oh, one year old, sure. right? I can't. Yeah. I can't get back to that. So, like, my diagnosis story is really my parents' yeah story of diagnosis, and like, you know, they mostly my mom has told me about it. Yeah, how scared they were and how terrified, uh, right? Because yeah. I mean, I'm so young, and my mother's sister was a type one diabetic who oh, actually really? died the same year I was born. Wow. Uh, so it was like. I'm sure that shaped kind of powerfully the ways in which she was thinking about what it would mean to have a daughter with uh, type 1 diabetes. So, you know, I have this baby book from my mother. She gave it to me a few years ago. And it's like, that's where the story of my diagnosis is located. You got the picture of me in the hospital, (laughs) right? The little sort of bit of documentation about it. The news, local news story of who's in the hospital. Carrie Rentschler is. You know, at St. Luke's Hospital. In the newspaper, that's <laughs> wild. City, Iowa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't wow. say I was diabetic, but that I was right, in, the that you were in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Which Sioux tells City. you a little See, bit about. Yeah. That's one of yeah. those things that, uh, frankly, that, that's one of those losses uh, as local papers have been taken yeah. over by the conglomerates. Uh, you don't have this kind of, of narrative being publicly yeah. produced about the community and stuff. So that's. But the fact that that was, yeah, you have this kind of documentation, um, but not the personal memory. And as I've talked with Melissa, she has a lot of personal memory and interestingly, not a whole lot of the physical documentation. And so she doesn't have like photos in there. She has vivid memories of being in the hospital, but no photos there. Um, And, you know, remembers the nurse and the nurse's name, uh, but doesn't have any kind of... uh, like written communicate any of that kind yeah. of stuff with them. So, yeah. So that's a really interesting kind of. It's very uh, different. Yeah. yeah Cause I'm frames. looking at someone else's records of me <laughs> rather right, than my right. own <laughs> memory yeah. of it. It's like someone else has recorded this. I don't even know who took a photo of me in the hospital. I, I need right. to ask my, my parents, like, did you take that? <laughs> when I was <laughs> crying. I mean, I was like this crying in this a, crib, yeah. right? Like I'm miserable. <laughs> it's a photo of me being miserable. Oh. So I always look back at that. Like that's the picture of my diagnosis is me crying in a crib in a hospital <laughs> in Sioux City, Iowa. That's wild. And thinking about, you know, thinking about, wow, that kind of captures, I think, captures it, especially for them. Yeah. Uh, especially for them trying to, you know, think about, you know, what, what their role then was going to be in terms of, you know, raising a daughter with diabetes um, and really training me by, I think by age nine, by age nine, I was giving my own injections Yeah, because I really didn't like other people 
I did not like my parents giving me my injections. And they, of course, were yeah. most concerned that, you know, I needed to learn how to take care of myself. Right. Right. And like to do all of this treatment management myself. And I was more than happy <laughs> to yeah. take that over from them. <laughs> I was like, I great. Yes. Great. Give me little, control. Little power of struggle this. going on. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. They were more than happy. They're like, great, because you Please. are miserable when we, you know, give you your injections. So let's make this a more pleasant experience for everyone. No yeah. kidding. So <laughs> yeah. and that's an interesting point because one of the things that is uh unique about having been diagnosed so young um is that you have a uh basically your entire lifelong uh, history with treatments and those treatments have changed dramatically since the 1970s, right? Oh my gosh. Totally dramatically. I mean, like I've seen, I mean, I started with urine testing. Yeah. Right. When I was in 73 up until uh, 1981, I started testing blood in 1981 and it was with chem strips, so it was a, you, you had a, you know, you had your pricker and then you had these sticks that you brought out and you put the yeah. blood on it and there's a chemical reaction. And what it would do is give you, you know, again, a color range right. to tell you, well, you're testing between here and here, whatever and here. it was, like yeah. 80 you have your little card and, you know, for reference 150, and... exactly, exactly. Yeah. Prior to that, it was like you had a test tube. Well, first you had tape, you had test tape, yeah. which was actually a chemically p- uh, treated piece of tape that you would pee on. You see what color it would turn. It would do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and then there were like a chemistry. Uh, what was it called? It was related to, it was like chem, it wasn't chem sticks. It was something the else. The dextro like, sticks? What was prior? They were these tablets. I actually had yeah. like a little science set in the bathroom, basically with a little test tube. And I'd, you know, put a chemical tablet in and I'd put some urine drops on it and it'd fizz up. It was very exciting, actually. Yeah. It was like I was doing an experiment. I was like, what color? What color? You know, <laughs> always hoping it would be like a lower, right? Like a low, a low color. I can't even remember. I think it was like from blue to orange or something like that. That's what I was going to ask is how they a, coded the color. Yeah, I was trying to remember. There have been a few yeah. of these kind of scales that they used color yeah. coding. And some had a scale between like red and yellow or brown and yellow. But others had yeah. blues and reds. And these were blues. Yep. Blues. So was blue yeah. the low end and red was the high I'm end? I'm trying to or? remember. I, well, I'll have I to go and look it up. One of them being the opposite, like the darker blue meant. I actually, I probably have a photo of this somewhere on my computer too. Yeah. But I think the, I think for one, the blue was high, but I think at one point maybe the yellow was, or the orange or was higher. Interesting. Um, anyway, you kind of got, it was this like color scheme. Yeah. That became the, can you even call that a measure? I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because it's so, it's a color. It's not a single number, right? And the color is meant to represent something that's just like, you know, this quite broad range that today just sounds, you know, kind of like, it's totally imprecise, that right? Be there is no useful. precision. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're yeah. sort of like, well, you're cu- you're high. We don't know exactly how high your blood sugar right. is, or your yeah. Well, it's not even your blood sugar because it's the sugar because in it your the urine. Year. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's delayed. So that's the other thing. So you yeah, were it's delayed. high. <laughs> yes. Like how long ago? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my body at now? How long right. is it now? Right. So there's that, the kind of the medium of what we've tested over time has really changed. I mean, the last change for me, okay, so urine to blood was 1981. Yeah. I actually wrote an essay about the 
the significance of that shift in my life for my college entrance ex- essay really? <laughs> when I was an undergraduate. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> I hope you still have copies of that. I That's so great. I do, but it was just like, that was their like, talk about, you know, an important <laughs> moment in your life or something. It's like, well, here it is. Maybe not what you were expecting, but there you go. BG me. And then, you know, yeah. And then up until, I mean, really like 2020, when I started using the pump I'm using now, which is a tandem insulin pump, you know, and now I use a continuous glucose monitor all the time and mm-hmm. I almost never test my blood sugar. And so now I test my interstitial fluid, right? right. Sort of, it's like fluid, you know, under the skin, basically, which is also delayed as well. So it's like we've gone from urine delay to blood being like, that's pretty much, that's exactly where you're at uh, at that moment to another kind of delay through interstitial fluids, but which, I mean, there's so many benefits to continuous glucose monitoring. But in 2020, my my mind was blown again because I wasn't pricking my finger. You know, from 1981 till 2020, you know, I was pricking my finger multiple times a day. Yeah. From like four times up to, you know, if it's a really bad day, 10 times, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> to see where things were at. So I was like, oh my, God, that just like changed my life again. It was this other kind of moment of changing my life. But you're, it's right. I, you know, over these 50, almost 50 years, I've sort of lived with um, different diabetes technologies, yeah. right? And like as diabetics, we do diabetes with technologies, Right. right. Like that's that's it with insulin delivery devices, with, um, you know, ways of uh, measuring the sugar in our bodies. And that has totally changed since 1973. Yeah. So, uh, so different. You mentioned all those finger pricks. How are your fingertips now? So you've kind of eased off of that for like a year and a half now, right? Yeah, that's right. Very smooth. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have the little tiny, these kind of tiny, almost callus-like things. And of course, they were all marked, right? Like you had little dots. Yeah, the little dots. Yep, little dots all over your fingers. So I just don't even have those. But you know what? I'm looking at my fingers and it's like, I can still see them. It's really interesting. So they're still, yeah, so the mark is still there. Actually, I do sort of see them. Yeah. Like these are not perfect fingertips. <laughs> these are not untouched <laughs> fingertips. There, I think there's yeah, there's something there I can see. Anyway, but they wow. are very. Um, uh, I don't feel them in the same way that I used to. Yeah, yeah which would change your kind of sensory experience with a lot of things. Exactly, then I would assume, exactly. right? Exactly. Nice sense um, of touch. Absolutely. So one of the things that uh, that connects with too is you were talking about the way that these technologies have changed so dramatically and especially the norms of which technologies are dominant in a particular moment. Um, yeah. And so when we talk about insulin injection, right? So for folks with yeah. type one, it's necessary all the time. Yep. Um, folks with type two, uh, sometimes all the time necessary as well. Yep. Um, but uh, you have uh, talked about and written about the way that that shift toward the use of the insulin pump has had serious implications for your kind of everyday life in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, but yeah, also, truly. also especially the way that that is then communicated to other people and the kind of feedback you get about using mm-hmm. devices and things like that. So um, what, I guess, first of all, how has the, how have those technologies or devices changed for you and what 
because you talked about the the major mind-blowing shift that the CGM was, right? What kind of shift was happening between injections with through a, a syringe or pen and the insulin pump? Right. So that was that happened in 2000 for me. So it's been almost 22 years that I've wow, been using yeah. an insulin pump. And, you know, pumps had been, you know, around for a while, but they really, like, really hit the market hard. Like, lots of people were using them by the mid-90s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was a grad student up until, I mean, I was a grad student up until 2002, but I had access to my spouse's um, healthcare yeah. <laughs> when he became a professor in 1999. And so I could get an insulin pump, right, without paying you know, $6,000 out of pocket uh, to get one. And so it was fully covered, which is like, like a gift. What a gift, man. (laughs) That was absolutely amazing. I'm always, you know, so uh, happy (laughs) about that um, and feel quite lucky. Um, um, But that really changed, um, totally changed my life. Going from multiple injections a day, you know, just like, you know, three injections a day, not, you know, really still pretty much being tied to what was, you know, uh, a very clear daily calendar Mm -hmm. of when your insulin levels were going to peak, right? So, you know, diabetics lives used to be, I'd say used to be type ones, at least I'll always be, I don't don't know what type two. But type 1 diabetic slimes used to be so routinized because you had to eat when your insulin was peaking in your body. Right. Right. So you'd have these short acting insulins that, you know, I was using like regular for a long time. So that was going to peak within four hours. Right. You give it at breakfast. You have to eat lunch four hours later. Right. Um, and if you miss that, I mean, you're, you're just going to have incredibly low blood sugar. Right. And there's not a lot you can do about that. Yeah, exactly. So it's like so routinized. I mean, that stayed with me until 2000. Really, it was still like that. And by 2000, then I switched to Humalog, which is a very short acting insulin. I still use Humalog, which means it doesn't peak the ways in which um, other longer acting, short acting insulins, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Right. Um, um, uh, affected you, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of their peaks. So that has, that just like, I could eat when I wanted, not when I had to eat. Right. That's actually incredibly mind blowing <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah. And in 2000, my, my, my partner like saw me order dessert at a restaurant for the very first time because I could also, I was using an insulin in a way where I could treat the sugar, Right. Yeah. That was going to hit my system in a way I couldn't do before. Right. Like I just I couldn't do it before with the kinds of insulins I had been using as well. Um, and so that was really uh, was really uh, incredible, actually, really. Yeah. Incredible. His mind was blown because he'd seen me for, you know, many years <laughs> not being able right. to do that. Yeah. 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 And that's so fascinating the way that the I mean, because some of these things are kind of what you would consider everyday practices and folks who don't live with type one and uh you know in many ways those who didn't experience or haven't experienced life without an insulin pump who do who do live with type one uh don't have that same like frame of reference for the way that that absolutely dominates the way that you can like function in a given day (laughs) on the most basic level right right eating and sleeping Two of the only things we like have to do, right, to survive, <laughs> yes. right? And they absolutely were dominated by 
the insulin regimen, right? Absolutely. Yep. For um, most, uh, almost 30 years of my life. Yeah. 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 And so now it's been over 20 years that you've been on an insulin pump. And so that has changed a lot of that. Um, and what, but one of the things that you have written about, and this comes from your recent article in Catalyst, and I'll link this uh, in our show notes for folks to be able to access this as well, because um, you talk a lot about the way that the like decisions around what these things will look like and how they will be used are meant to hide the fact that you are actually performing a medical treatment act. That's right. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, how has how has that kind of like stigma around the medicalization of I mean your existence really how has mm-hmm. that changed with the kind of shift between devices and how you have existed now with the with the pager like uh, insulin pump yes right <laughs> yeah so Benjamin Nothware who wrote that piece with me um, and who's also a type one diabetic, you know, I, I've been wanting to write about diabetes for a while. And I was like, okay, here's someone I could write it with. Right. And we had all of these really interesting conversations and we started to interview each other as well as a way of kind of generating Mm -hmm. some of these ideas about the ways in which we understand our own relationships to what it means to do diabetes with technology. Right. What is it to, to kind of port that technology with us on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, for me, I mean, there's about 30 years between our diagnoses. Wow, yeah. (laughs) Right, so 73 to uh, 2002 or something, I think, for for Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went, since I went from a syringe to a pump, it was like, like the technology, the insulin delivery technology is so different, right? I went from this signifier of medical you know, action, <laughs> a signifier right. of that, right? Like it's the, the, the syringe clearly, clearly um, communicates that to right. a pump, which was marketed to me and everyone else, you know, in this market area as something that didn't look like a syringe, right? right? Like you could deliver insulin with something that didn't look like it. In fact, we think it looks like a pager, right? And so that was how, um, that was how it was not only marketed, but designed the very look of insulin pumps and still a lot of insulin pumps still have this same look, looks a lot like what pagers looked like, uh, in the mid 1990s up until the early two thousands as well. I mean, uh, I I included, we included in that piece, a kind of photo (laughs) of some like direct design comparisons between a Medtronic pump you know, and uh, and a Motorola pager, for instance, that look almost right. exactly alike. Their screens look alike, their buttons look alike, their color looks alike, their size, their shape, like all of this stuff yeah. is really, um, really is like we say, like materializes the metaphor of the of the pager. It is meant to look exactly like that. And others yeah. were meant to look like flip phones at the time. Right. They really, right. Like, again, have the same sh- size, color. Their screens look the same way. Their buttons are in the same place, like all of that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things we were interested in is, okay, how, why is that the design framework for these things? Like what is going on and what is being communicated to type one diabetics about how they should deliver insulin 
uh, into their bodies and how they should relate to those technologies that they're that they're doing that through. And that revealed to us both like, you know, we were being told to conceal the medical aspects of being a diabetic, of that that very yeah. medical act of delivering insulin mm-hmm. so that it didn't look like you were delivering insulin. It looked like maybe you were checking a pager and you had to go make a call sure. or something. Or with an insulin pen, which again, they don't look syringe-like either. They actually look like fountain pens. A lot of them are very pretty. They're super colorful. They got designs on them. The like smart pens that are for sale right now are like very fancy looking. Yeah. Right. Uh, Very, very fancy. Again, to sort of, you know, tell you as a diabetic, you can give insulin without it looking like you're giving insulin. Right. Right. And so you can have a kind of cover under these um, design frameworks, right? Maybe you want to conceal it. And it's also part of that is maybe you should conceal it too. Right. Maybe it shouldn't look medical. Um, and for a lot of diabetics, we had already been getting those messages about how we were supposed to, you know, maybe manage our diabetes in private rather than in public. Don't bring out your syringes at, you know, a dinner table right, or right. You know, at a restaurant table. I was always like, screw that. I'm doing that. I'm diabetic. Yeah. This is it. I need to put this in my body. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for me. So right. <laughs> so like, that's the way it is. I was always like, point, no. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that's fantastic because for a lot of people, they're, they're basically compelled to go to the bathroom away from yeah. everybody else and the actual food. The thing you're doing, you have to go to the bathroom to inject your insulin, right? And you're going to a bathroom. Yes. In like a rest, you know, restaurant, which I would say like, you know, we're always worried about the cleanliness around, right. not that bathrooms are necessarily totally unclean, but it's like <laughs> you're, you're, you're like using alcohol swabs to make sure everything is actually super clean as you're delivering insulin too. So I always found that like go to the bathroom to do that and you're like, you know, yeah. <laughs> where do which, you put stuff, right? Which you're also like, carries, go? <laughs> like it signifies something totally different, right? Because syringes yes, in bathrooms, when we talk about place and space, a syringe in a bathroom Absolutely. has a totally different type of stigma yes, than it does. the syringe by That's itself, right. right? That's right. Especially, you know, and I, you know, see this here in Montreal and in other cities as well, where, you know, they put in blue lights. So that mm. folks can't find veins, for instance, if they're, right. if they're wanting to, to use intravenous drugs uh, while they're there, right? So to make it really hard to actually use a syringe, for instance, to deliver, um, deliver drugs in a different way. And that's, you know, one of the things, too, that has, you know, shaped the what we call the kind of monitored performance yeah. of insulin delivery, which is its association, like the medical association of syringes with IV drug use, Mm. right, and all of the kind of moralizing um, around that and the stigmas around that um, and wanting to create distance from that kind of of, of stigma uh, as, as, as again, a kind of reason why uh, you might want to make insulin delivery technologies not look like medical technologies. But they also, you know, one of the things we found, too, is not only about concealment, which is what so much of the marketing discourse was like we were looking at the early marketing discourse around insulin pens which is all like this is going to exactly look look exactly like a pen that you would have at work you know you can put it alongside your fancy fountain pen you know you can discreetly use it they talk they use the language of discretion um, as you know how you should be relating to what it is to deliver insulin but they also are training people how to reveal diabetes All at right, the same right. time. Yeah. Because the only way you know someone's diabetic is when their technology comes out. 
Right. right. Unless you know what low blood sugar looks like and all of the symptomology around that, which often looks like being someone's um, uh, inebriated. Right. Drunk or inebriated, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Um, it looks people look like they've lost their minds in various ways, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's also it too to be able to reveal it and maybe even to self fashion it as well. Mm. So when pumps, you know, when I was first using a pump, there were all these skins you could put on pumps, right? You could put like leopard skins on, sparkly yeah. stuff. You could bedazzle. You could bedazzle your bedazzle. pump, basically. Yes. <laughs> right? So it looked cool, right? It could look yeah. cool. Not somebody to hide, but somebody to be like, look how cool this is. It might right. look like a pager too, but it's a fancy, shiny one, right? right? And um, and those, that worked really, really interestingly in the context of interactions as mm -hmm. a type 1 diabetic too. I had students in a class see my pump on my, on my, on my belt and were like, is that a pager? They really thought it was a pager, right? It actually worked um, to look like a pager. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't remember if I wrote about, if we wrote about this in the piece, but they thought the little tube was connected to batteries that must have been somewhere in my pants. Like so backup I was also batteries like, so that it wouldn't like run hilarious. out. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, I absolutely loved that. You've got to be on call. Okay, this yes. is serious. <laughs> You never know when the department head is going to need to get yeah. a hold of you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, but they's wow. like, it was just, we were just like, these are, these are designed, insulin pens and pumps are designed to look like communication technologies and they're yeah. marketed that way. And the patents talk about them that way. And like, that is the discourse around these technologies, both their material, like their materiality, like what they are as artifacts, but also the ways in which they're understood. And that was really weird mm. and interesting to us. And those comparisons too, one of the things we talk about is how the pager comparison today seems so obsolete and weird, right? Like yeah. this is a very residual technology. I mean, you, it's mm -hmm. being used in hospital settings and stuff. It's very like particular cultural context. Right. But now it's like, what? <laughs> that isn't right. For a lot of people that, that comparison doesn't work so much because they yeah. are such residual technologies, right? They are not something that most people see or are familiar with uh, anymore. And now pumps look more and more like cell phones. Like yeah. So phones. it's like, you're not that yeah. kind of doctor, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but that is interesting because you said that you recently switched insulin pumps, right? Yeah. This would have been a couple of years ago now, a year and a half that's ago right. or so. Um, yeah. And that particular insulin pump... Um, because it, it's the T-Slim, right? Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah. Um, very much designed around the kind of cell phone, a smartphone, kind of touchscreen smartphone Absolutely. aesthetic, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, interesting the way that that has changed but stayed the same, right? We have this, uh, it's just another uh, analog for a communication device. Right. Right. That's right. It's just, it's a new skeuomorph, right? Yeah. Like it's an, it looks, it still looks like another technology, right? But this one is different. Now it's a cell phone rather than a pager, right? Because so it doesn't the translate. The structure's still there. That's yeah, right. The other doesn't That's translate. Right. Um, and this does. But also like, what does a desirable technology look like too? Right. Like, you know, color screens, for instance, are pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> and, and also that true. glass, There's, the full glass yeah. front, right? Because now it's sleek. Now you have the... All of the ways that cell phone designers talk about the beauty of the device is built into yes. the insulin pump too, right? And having yeah. a beautiful object is just as important as having a cool object. For right? sure. Absolutely. So. Um, and 
I do think they're, they're beautiful. Legitimately. I actually like the look of this. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was drawn to that in part. Um, yeah. As well as, you know, how it could transform my own, you know, like it's automated. So much on this pump is automated, which is, is also really mind blowing. Yeah. Well. And totally changes your relationship with insulin and injection too. Right. So that's yep. really interesting. Um, yeah. And on this kind of note of relationship, uh, you you mentioned that you co-authored this recent piece in Catalyst. Um, yeah. And um, I found that piece really uh, interesting and important, especially some of the ways that you both were were talking through the way that you are very kind of hyper-conscious of your position related to both diabetes and also these devices. Um, but one of the things that I also find really fascinating is your relationship with each other. Um, mm. Because I know that you have mentioned that you're working on a piece on diabetes kinship, right? Yep. And um, this reads like a mentor kind of relationship mm. with another person yeah. with type one. Yeah. And have yeah. you ever had that kind of mentorship kind of relationship with someone with type one? Right. I'd have a more of a peer mentorship relationship mm. too. Um, yeah. Right. And uh, which a friend from grad school Again, we were like out at a bar one night and he pulls mm -hmm. out his testing equipment and I'm just like, you're diabetic. I mean, I literally exclaimed, you're diabetic. <laughs> <Yes>. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, why? I'm like, look, I am too. <laughs> right? Like this revealing of my own technology. And it was like, we're related in some way, right? We're connected. Yeah. Um, just through what we do uh, as diabetics and many of the things, of course, that we have experienced, it's always for me a moment of joy, <laughs> like mm -hmm. great joy mm -hmm. when I find out someone else is diabetic because I have someone I can talk to yeah. uh, about diabetes and to share in the experience of it. And for me, it does really feel like a kind of kinship. I feel connected yeah. to other people who have type one diabetes. And it's like, I may not have anything else in common with them, to be perfectly honest, right? right. I may not have anything else in common sure. with them. But the fact that, you know, we have this shared set of conditions as right. well as what is, you know, a kind of a way of doing things in relationship to our chronic illness mm. to me is that that's the kind of grounds of yeah. our connection. Right. So, again, those moments of revelation, those coming out moments. Right. Or it's like here the tech becomes visible. You see how someone's using it. You're like, oh, my goodness. You are also a type one diabetic. And that happened with Benjamin and, and me when Benjamin, you know, revealed uh, that they were diabetic. I was like, oh, my wow. God. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, we I already have no so idea. much to talk about. Right. Like yeah. and we're like working on things together. But that's just like, oh, my goodness. And then sort of like, you know, but not everybody feels the same way. Yeah, I would say not everybody feels necessarily that connection, though. I think one of the things we see on, you know, like Facebook groups for type one diabetics, mm -hmm. you know, and other kinds of social media spaces where people are talking with each other about being type one diabetic, you do see those, right? You see that yeah. taking shape. But I've had many experiences where 
you know, I've, I've seen someone reveal uh, that they are diabetic and I've been excited and kind of invite them to talk with me about it. And they have absolutely not wanted to do that. No interest. Right? Like that's yeah. no interest whatsoever. That's something private. They don't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's, they keep it to themselves more yeah. or that's the, that's the response I understand that I was getting. And I never understood it really. Um, right. Even though I know where it comes from. I know exactly yeah. where it comes from. It right. comes from this space of shame that we're mm-hmm. supposed to feel shameful and that we're supposed to keep this private. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it's not who we are. Diabetes is something right. we have, but it's not who you are. And I think there's right. also that to these attempts to to distance diabetes from identity. Right. Right. And how we understand our public and private selves as well. Whereas, I mean, you've heard already, I feel like I was born with diabetes. Right. It's it's my norm. That's my normal. Always has <laughs> That's been. what's normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Always has been. And I think that's really different when people haven't been, you know, diagnosed so early right. that those moments of diagnosis and consecutive, you know, all these consecutive experiences that, you know, subsequent, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. subsequent yep. experiences, uh, tell them that it's shameful, uh, tell them that, you know, if something's going wrong with your type one diabetes, there must be something wrong with you, uh, that you're not good at this, right? You're doing a poor job right. of managing your disease. You're somehow, right? It's like, again, a kind of moral judgment. Yeah. On, on who you are and how you're doing things. And I think, you know, if that is the way in which type 1 diabetes is understood and, and, and we're told to understand it that way, that there are norms around that that mm-hmm. shape how we live our daily lives and are meant to understand them, the invitation to talk openly with another diabetic may not be seen as, a, as something one wants, right? Right. So yeah. that has always, I've always been, I was always sad in those moments myself, mm-hmm. but I was also like, I totally respect, Understand. Right? respect. Yep. We're not going to have that. Com- it's okay. It's totally right. okay. They know I'm here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they know I'm here if they want to. And so not um, only is, when, yeah. not only is diabetes specifically kind of, uh, demonized or there's a, a, yeah. uh, an association between diabetes and some kind of moral failing Right. In the large scale, but like illness yeah. in general, in American culture, yeah. Yeah. Uh, illness in general That's is seen right. as a moral failing. Um, Absolutely. Because if you're if you're ill, then clearly you didn't, quote unquote, do what you needed yeah. to do to be, quote unquote, healthy. And all of that's super yes. like problematic. But totally. that's the framework that even if we're resistant to it, it's still present. And so people have to kind of negotiate it. Right. Whether you push back against it or whether you do that pushing privately or publicly, right? It's still got to be yep. negotiated in some way. So Yeah, there's like, there's no exca- escaping the fact that you have to negotiate that. Right. <laughs> it's always there. Like, not only do you have to treat yourself as a diabetic, but you also have to navigate, right? Um, yeah. These kind of compounding norms, right? That are, that tell you things that you should be, you know, you should feel bad about yourself. Yeah. If you're not, you know, if, 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 if you're having a bad day, as a diabetic, the blood sugars are out of control, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. And yeah. so, out of, you know, control. And so then there's all this language built into how you're now using this device, right? It's all about control. It's all about the, the, the future of where your blood sugars will be too. And so while the advent of trends from the continuous glucose monitor has absolutely changed the game with how people can live and everything. It also is coding, well, 
I know that right now, like I'm quote unquote fine or okay or good, right? This is telling me that I'm double arrowing up. And so I'm not anymore, yeah. right? That's even right. though I'm, <laughs> even though right now I'm okay, I won't be okay. And so therefore I'm still not okay. <laughs> right. Right. So. I mean, you're describing that feature, right, on the pump like I have, where it tells you, you know, how your blood sugar is doing and where it's going and at what rate, right? And yeah. so you get these arrows. When they're straight across, it's like, yeah, my blood sugar is staying the same. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I wake up, you know, when I wake up in the morning and there's like a flat line on my pump showing me what my sugars were, you know, for hours and it didn't change and it was all the same. It's it's an accomplishment. Yes. (laughs) That's the unicorn as they say. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Um, I feel a certain way in relationship, not only to these numbers, right. But to their representation, right. The ways in which they're graphically presented to me as a way that, you know, I'm supposed to feel about myself right. too. So those double arrows going up, which is like your blood sugar is going up really fast right now is like, ah, yeah. you know, like sh- I really get frustrated at those points too. So, yeah. I mean, I think there's more people talking about this in some of the scholarship and mm-hmm. you know, also more in public uh, conversations and on, and on uh, blogs and social media networks about like how people feel about their numbers. Yeah. Right. And you talk about this, right. As data doubles, like this yeah. kind of identity that comes from our data and how we're supposed right. to relate to that as well. And I think there's something, I think there's something to that, right. Like yeah. sort of what are, uh, how are we supposed to feel in relationship to our numbers and the identity constructs that often go with those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, there's something about, that's not just an abstraction of ourselves, but it's actually a representation of ourselves and a way of being. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think about that in terms of yeah. like, it feels really intimate to me and mm-hmm. not just like abstracting or alienating. It feels super intimate and a kind of knowledge um, that mm. diabetics develop about themselves by the ways they not only quantify themselves, but how that gets tracked and represented back to them as well. And how you feel about that. Because I feel very strongly yeah. <laughs> about my numbers. <laughs> well, and so that feeling, maybe that's a, a place where we can kind of uh, wrap there. Because part of what's interesting about a lot of these conversations and the threads that we've kind of woven here is that there are there are really complicated ways that emotion is evoked or otherwise kind of tied to the chronic illness itself, but the devices and treatments involved in the the experience of living with chronic illness too. So I, is there a kind of space or practice or uh, whatever related to diabetes where is a space of diabetic joy for you? Because mm. it's kind of a that hard space awesome, to find. That's an awesome question, Steve. Thank I think you. about, I mean, I think about, <laughs> no, it is no. <laughs> I mean, it's such an, I love that question. Yeah. Thinking about what would diabetic, what does diabetic joy maybe look like or feel like? And I don't often think about joy in relationship to diabetes. I think about, um, a kind of validation or recognition, mm. Mm. like that my, my diabetic anniversaries, right. My diet right. anniversaries, whatever the length, whatever word you used, 
Uh, it's sort of like, yes, I've accomplished something. I mean, there's a lot of things that have helped me accomplish that. People, right. systems, you know, sort of healthcare systems, all of that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just me. Um, but there's a kind of recognition of not just survival, but ways of if you can actually find and have the privilege to live well with yeah. diabetes, right? Um, I wonder if that's a kind of... I haven't thought about it as joy. I want to think about yeah. it a little bit more. Like, what's the pleasure aspect of this, right? right. Like, and right. And like, part of why old, that's interesting. there's this old blog, blog called like Great Queering <laughs> Diabetes. Like, how can we like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how can we queer these ways exactly. of thinking about diabetes and its treatment, which are actually tied to things like desire exactly. and pleasure. Totally. Yeah. Because that's where I get, yeah. that's, where, that's exactly where this came from was the kind of queer crip uh, yep. framework of finding joy uh, but not only finding joy, but producing it too in yes. spaces that yeah. have been kind of systemically built to erase it or produce yeah. other and kinds of been, experiences. Yeah. And that haven't only been defined by, you know, biomedical institutions right. for us about what constitutes health and wellness. And that if you don't fit into those norms, you're, you're right. <laughs> you're yeah. not well. Right. Uh, and you're not healthy. Um and that's, code, yeah. I code that's negative, what, right? Coded negative. And right. that's like whatever yeah. direction you take it, coded negative. Um, you know, because I've seen in certain circles of, you know, uh, diabetic Instagram, in some cases, diabetic Twitter, where the kinds of uh, diabetes memes and jokes become a space for producing that. Um, yes. And then also joy and pleasure in kind of things in relation to. So I've written before about kind of sex and these devices and how that plays into uh, intimacy between people. And, but it's also a kind of in between, right? So it's not exactly. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, uh, something to, something to chew on maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of humor, right. That leads to certain kinds of joy around these. That's why I I mean, I love memes. Some of them are so grown worthy in, yes. in relationship uh, to diabetes. I find them like, oh, right? That's oh. But, but others are just like, make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk about you. Benji and I have talked about that, too, in relationship, to, again, to these like, uh, you know, outdated skeuomorphs of the, yes. you know, the pump is like a pager and the ways in which people like, you know, rightly make fun of that, right? Yeah. Like that is just ridiculous at this point. <laughs> yes. And I think there are spaces of joy <laughs> yeah. uh, in that kind of work. Yeah. So, well, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic talking with you and having a chance to connect personally in spaces where we've only been able to connect kind of virtually. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much. I loved it. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So that conversation was amazing. I have never met Carrie, but I want to meet her now and be diabetic friends. (laughs) No, seriously. I mean, Uh, you should reach out to her for sure. (laughs) I loved how she was talking about when you run into someone and see that they have a device or you finally realize they have diabetes and that excitement. And that is how I feel every time. Yeah. And I have had those experiences like in the grocery store or. I'm thinking one specific time here in Lafayette where I saw someone had an insulin pump in her pocket. And so I was like, oh, you're diabetic. So am I. And it was like 
crickets, <laughs> look at me weird. I was like, like all right, about- you're not excited about this. Okay. Yeah. I'm not excited about having it either, but like yeah. we can connect. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting how different, you know, different people experience diabetes differently day to day even. Yeah. No, for sure. And that whole conversation about the way that, you know, the experience with chronic illness and diabetes specifically is such a, in a lot of ways, all-consuming experience. Mm -hmm. And so seeing someone that in whatever way then you can see that they share that experience, it's, I get why it's super exciting. Yeah. And she talked about that automatic you know, you just feel like you know a person because you, know, you may know nothing about this person. It's in a grocery store line, um, but you have this intimate connection because you know what it feels like to have this chronic illness. And it's such a huge part of your life every single day. Yeah. Um, it, I don't want to say it's a relief, but it's like this sort of, I don't know, it's hard to explain, well, I guess. I mean, it's validating at least. Yeah, it's right? like. There are other people out there who like experience these things and these feelings and emotions of what it feels like to be this and have this. Um, I liked how she was talking yeah. about that kind of distinction between I am, this is who I am. Mm. And, um, you know, I have this. <laughs> I have versus I am. Yeah. Right. That whole. Mm-hmm. That, and so there's a lot of the conversation there in that, that moment. There was a lot packed into a very short conversation there about identity, mm-hmm. right? Because there were some nods there toward how complex it is to think about something like diabetes as an aspect of one's identity, yeah. right? Because on the one hand, like she was talking about, this is literally something that she experiences all day, every day. Of her entire life. Yeah. Right? How can it not be this huge part of your identity? And so, of course, it is to her, right? Right. But she also said that she understands or she can see where it comes from, even though she doesn't personally understand Mm -hmm. people's aversion to that Mm -hmm. kind of connection Mm -hmm. because of all that stigma associated with. Yeah, not having it define define you. And there's this weird sort of, I don't know, influidity. Is that a word? In fluidity, I like it. We're, yeah, we can make um, up words you here. Know, just, yeah. That's what I do for a living. You know that, right? <laughs> can I get paid for that? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it, she also how she was talking about. You know, she was diagnosed at one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of talking about how different it is to be diagnosed at different ages and people being right. diagnosed at fifty or twenty or you know, I was diagnosed at nine, and. For me, that was kind of at a time where you are starting to feel embarrassed about things and starting to realize, you know, people teasing you about different things or that you're different or, you know, I I was in third grade and I remember I was diagnosed in February, uh, 25 years ago this February, yeah. actually. Um, and when I went back to school, my teacher was really great and she sat the class down and we had this conversation. I wish I could remember more clearly about sort of the conversation that we had um, when she was explaining to the class my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there was some weird pushback from 
this one kid in my class who, I wish I could remember more specifics. I'll have to like think through it more. Um, yeah. But, you know, her telling the class, you know, she's no different from you. She has this, you know, chronic illness, but, you know, that doesn't, you know, make her different, um, which is kind of hilarious because, yeah, it does make you different. But right. I think what she was trying to do, and this is me obviously analyz- analyzing it <laughs> as an no. adult mm-hmm. now, but as a child, that felt good to, you know, have it talked about. It yeah. wasn't this, like, let's keep it under the table secret thing, which... For most of my life, I was trying to hide it, trying to just not have it brought up and mm-hmm. not have it discussed. And um, I don't really know what that sem- I mean, I know what that stems from. That's a much longer conversation yeah. of, you know, experiences that I've had. Um, but I just thought that was interesting. You know, when you're diagnosed at one, you were talking about not having the sense of before, you know, yeah. before diabetes. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a part of that, it, and there's been a lot of really, I think, important kind of disability studies work and writing related to this very, like, question and phenomenon of um, experience, the experience before and the imaginary future mm-hmm. of a post-chronically ill or post-disabled life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a really problematic framework. Mm-hmm. That erases what that experience actually is sure. right now, right? Because there is a mourning for that which was lost and the yearning for a future that isn't my experience now. Mm-hmm. And it's not, in, uh, when I say it that way, it makes it feel like it's uh, like just an individual process. But part of what I think she was getting at with how these devices are like inscribed with meaning is that we are trained to think about ourselves in particular ways, right? And so it's not about an individual just, quote-unquote, feeling this way. It's that we are actually kind of compelled to feel this right. way because it's not, like, socially acceptable <laughs> to be ill. Yeah. And, you know, talking about hiding in the bathroom to do shots or, you know, those things that were sort of, mm-hmm. you know, ooh, don't don't do that in front of me or the uncomfortable people being uncomfortable witnessing you doing this thing that Mm -hmm. sustains your life and how ridiculous that sounds on like talking about it. But, you know, we've all been in that experience where someone says something to us that is intrinsically like defining to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I would never marry someone with diabetes because then our kids would have diabetes. Like someone said that to me in high school and it was traumatic for me. And, you know, this person probably doesn't remember that they said this. Sure. I, I'm almost certain, you know, of course. but to me, that was this, you know, oh, are people not going to want to be with me because of this? And, you know, that sort of thought process in defining yourself Mm -hmm. and you know your self-worth and all those things all because of this thing that's completely outside of anyone's control yep right there's no decision made to live chronically ill life that's not a decision people make right and so it's an arbitrary thing that is specific to your experience Mm -hmm. but it's coded as socially unacceptable 
Right. right? And that's where she gets at this, the language of the morality of health versus illness, mm-hmm. um, of able-bodiedness versus disability, and uh, all of that framed in terms of a, a moral experience is how all of this super problematic stuff gets inscribed onto people. Yeah. Because if it's moral, then there are significant impacts on how we exist in this world and how it's received by others. Right? It codes everything we do. So one of the other things that she talked through here that I found really interesting Mm -hmm. was the way that she narrated the change in testing technologies. Wow. I, (laughs) yeah, I'd never, I'd never heard of testing, like urine testing blood sugars. Yeah. Which is really interesting because, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a standard for many, many decades prior to the use of blood in testing. Sure. Um, have you ever used a like color coded strip kind of testing thing? Um, so not blood sugars, uh, ketone tests. Oh, right, right. Which when I was diagnosed was very big. It was like, you should be doing this all the time to see if you have ketones. And I, it never really made sense to me as a kid. And I don't think I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think as a kid in the nineties, um, that there was a lot of conversation with the doctor to me, like explaining these things. It was like, they right. were talking to my parents mm-hmm. and Wow, I've never really thought about that before until I just mentioned that. But so, you know, when you're a kid, it's a lot of talking to the parents and what this is. And so, you know, a lot of times you probably zone out or, you know, they're not talking to me. They're talking to my parents about this stuff. But right, ketone testing just didn't make sense to me. And it's probably because it was like, okay, what color is it? And oh, is it like in this upper range that you shouldn't be in or I don't know. I, I never really, we never really used that as sort of a basis of testing. Yeah. And I remember. And part of that, that's the, that I find really interesting is that as she was talking through, she was diagnosed in the Mm seventies. Right. And it wasn't until the 1980s that using blood was even a thing. Yeah. At home. That's crazy. Um, they had blood testing materials in hospitals, specifically in clinic situations, mm-hmm. um, for a couple of decades. This would have been in the 60s at least when dextrose sticks were, became a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so her entire kind of framework there at the beginning was not the numbers. Yeah. Right? The scale was based on color and then they mapped colors onto numbers. <laughs> and they said, okay, so this color means that you're kind of in this range. Yeah. I, and I was thinking about this, how horrifying, you know, I, I think about what it would be like to be a parent of a, an infant. Yeah. (laughs) Literally an infant and trying to guess, okay, so like, what do we feed this child? And I'm really curious as to like how that, you know, how that was done. How do you, (laughs) You know, you don't have any basis for, you know, and it's delayed. Mm-hmm. So these tests that you're taking are delayed. And also, how do you get a baby to pee on a whatever, you know? Well, and so that was interesting <laughs> because the way she talked through it, now it kind of makes sense. Because uh, originally the the 
medium they mm-hmm. were using was like a tape. And so she was saying oh, you would pee on the tape. So I'm guessing they would stick like, that in the swipe it across the urine that was in the diaper. That would be That's my guess because so you can't, you can't like time. <laughs> Hold the child over. <laughs> there are people who do that. I, yeah. I um, I, yeah. That's really fascinating wow, yeah. to me. How, I mean, how, how scary. I mean, for any mm-hmm. parent to have a child with diabetes, it's scary because you are not the one experiencing what they're experiencing. And, you know, but you're constantly worried about <laughs> the well-being and safety of your child. So, yeah. I mean, we're going to have some interesting conversations about that in future sure. episodes. Cause, yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, the experience of a parent in, in relation to your child's diagnosis, that's a whole other side of the experience of living with diabetes. Right. Right. Yeah, there's personal experience with living with the diagnosis yourself. Mm-hmm. But for people who are direct caregivers, it, that's a whole other yeah. whole other thing. The other side of this conversation about testing that I found really interesting is the way that she talked about how very early on and then now the last couple of years since she got a CGM, mm-hmm. uh, the testing is based on something that is other than blood from your body. Yeah. Yeah, the interstitial interstitial fluid. And before that it was urine. And both of those are delayed yeah, representation, it's so crazy. right? Of where your body was, not necessarily where your body is at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. And so she went the span of 30 or so years with I mean, probably more than that, right? It was probably more like 40. Uh, I I'm overestimating. I think it's in uh, around 30 years there where she was testing her blood directly. Yeah, I think about how strange that is. I still test my blood to calibrate my uh, sensor, um, which is, you know, depending on if my sensor's functioning correctly and if I'm paranoid about <laughs> how I'm feeling and right. stuff. Um, but I imagine it would be for, you know, testing your blood for so many years and then not doing it would be a very strange feeling. Yeah. Just like anything else in your life that you suddenly aren't doing anymore. You know, there's this Mm -hmm. system of doing things that, you know, would be interrupted. And yeah. And so the whole way, your whole way of understanding your body and what's happening changed. Yeah. And so so while it's freeing and great to not have to prick your finger and worry about doing this Mm -hmm. all the time, I imagine there's a lot of mixed feelings about what's happening. Sure. I mean, at the very least, you have to find ways to adjust, (laughs) right? Because you have to totally, not have to, but it does totally Mm -hmm. change how you're interacting with this. And there's something strange about trusting a blood sugar that you do on a test versus trusting a sensor. And for me, I don't know why there's that discretion of doing my blood test seems like, oh, this is like, okay, this is for sure. But then mm. on the sensor, I'm like, well, mm, like, is this that question of accuracy? Correct? Yeah. How well the representation actually matches. So there's this weird sort of trust relationship mm. with mm. devices. Oh. <laughs> wow. That yeah. is really fascinating. Steve's now thinking, mm, paper. That no, I, I mean, that, about this. No, bring that up. That's fascinating. Yeah. Right? That you trust the meter more than you trust the CGM. And that's really fascinating. Well, which is weird because the CGM has been this great freeing thing. Yeah. But it's also 
been really frustrating too in a lot of ways when it's not correct and like when it's not correctly calibrated or when it's having issues calibrating it's just like ugh. and maybe it's because i've been doing blood testing for years mm-hmm. and so i'm familiar and it's like okay this is you know this is what my blood sugar is but there is that weird trust uh scenario going yeah. on i don't really know yeah i mean the meter the the finger prick is like a well-worn hat right <laughs> Uh, you get a new hat. Sometimes it feels a little weird, even if you like it. You <laughs> oh my know, no, I, you know, but I, <laughs> that might be a dumb analogy, but, <laughs> but no, but that's really interesting. And it does go back to this point though, that the CGM is not reading your blood glucose. Mm-hmm. It is reading glucose levels in the fluid below your skin. Yeah. It's not blood. And then there are algorithms written into the device that are translating what it's reading and then estimating what you are now. Mm -hmm. So it reads where you were basically and then estimates where you are now. So it is inherently a process that is like once or twice removed further than the, the finger prick, right? You know, that the, the, proximity to your actual blood being tested <laughs> changes some of that that no that's really fascinating oh my gosh trust <laughs> device trust that's so fascinating and this conversation about trust i think is uh interesting in relation to a different side of this conversation i had with her mm-hmm. because uh we referenced this paper that she co-authored in catalyst and we'll link this like i mentioned before in our show notes but um they talk about the way that the design, the way people decided on how they were going to actually like build these devices were built to mimic the way that thing that other devices already looked and were used, but especially communication devices mm-hmm. that people were already familiar with. It is kind of funny that the the tech and look of devices is just finally sort of changing in some ways because you know, the pager look is so ridiculous. Yeah. And I have really had people ask me if I have pagers and it's like, yeah. what? <laughs> like, I guess people in the medical field still have reference for pagers because they think they still sort of use similar tech in like hospitals and stuff oh, yeah. like that. But, but it's just funny. The only space now. It's just funny. Like, People who even know me, I'm like, why would I have a pager? <laughs> like, what a weird yes. thing to ask someone in this decade, you know? Like, <laughs> is that a pager? Um, yeah. Let me just page the hospital. I'm on my way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Let me answer this page from 30 years ago. Thanks. No. Um especially like we didn't pagers were on the out by the time our kind of age group was around so we didn't ever use pagers um personally (laughs) there were you know there are people you know the decade before us who actually used pagers so oh yeah that's kind of a weird yeah of course pagers were big late 80s into the (laughs) 90s they were the thing that's why these designers were like oh this is this is a hot design that's why it's so weird i guess it's (laughs) expensive to you know change what they look like but it just seems with how much money they're, you know, funneling in <laughs> well, but this, devices. That's actually you really would, interesting. like, change the look of it, right? I, You know, I'm a designer and, like, the look of things 
you know, I, I tried not to decide on which insulin pump to get based on the looks. But then I'm thinking, why? Like, why did I do that? You know, because I, you know, I want it to look cool. I want it to yeah. feel good when I'm holding it. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. something about that kind of user experience that. Totally. Like she was saying, you want it to be desirable. Right. Right. Because if this thing's going to be connected to you and you're going to be engaging with it every day, basically all day long, it should be something that you like (laughs) and enjoy. But also what you're talking through highlights some of the complexities of like technological design over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, the way that a design can become normalized or almost synonymous with certain practices. And so, you know, it's really hard to move away from the design of the mini med, let's say that because it was decades long that they had this pager design that was exactly mimicking what a pager looked like with the little screen above and the couple of little buttons below. Mm -hmm. Um, But moving away from that design has a lot of implications. Right. Right. People know that device. They know how it works. They know how to interact with it. Mm -hmm. They are comfortable. Right. And so when you're decades deep in using a particular design, it can actually be kind of detrimental to the sales. I mean, we're thinking pragmatically. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking when when I got this new version of the Medtronic pump, um... I did kind of want to try something new, but this is what I knew. This is what had like, you know, the closed loop system was very like useful in Mm -hmm. how I was treating my exciting. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I stuck with it because it was familiar and I felt safe because it was offering me what I needed. Right. So it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then the subtle side that she talked through there and the ways that, because these are very consciously being designed to reflect what a communication device mm-hmm. is doing or how a, what a person is doing, they're doing work. If we, if, I mean, we can frame it that way. Yeah. <laughs> People who are using communication devices like that, mm-hmm. um, fountain pens and beepers, <laughs> we are talking about people usually engaged in labor. Yeah. Right? And so not only is it training us to think about this treatment as not medical because of stigmas and things associated there, but it's also involved in trying to portray that you are working, (laughs) right? And that's a whole other can of worms. And so we'll have to, we can come back to that another time. Well, that wraps up episode four. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of what we wanted to talk about, but hopefully we did Always. some justice but that <laughs> to leads Carrie's room interview. So that you all can engage the conversation with us. Hop on over to Instagram, comment on some of these posts. Let us know what you think too. <laughs> but this was our conversation about uh, mini garlic naan and our discussion with Dr. Carrie Rentschler from McGill University. Thank you all for listening. Make sure that you head over to Instagram and follow us if you haven't. Like and subscribe on whichever of your streaming services you prefer. And if you're feeling so inclined, go ahead and give us a rating. Spotify just added a rating feature. That's super complicated right now because of all the stuff going on with Spotify. We're not (laughs) going to talk about that. 
because this is also on Spotify. But <laughs> thank you all very much. And we will see you next week. Bye.